Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Midweek Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this uh, entry as we continue our conversation about women in the design of creation. The end of our last podcast in this series, I mentioned that we were going to schedule an open forum Q&R time to discuss this topic. And I'm excited to do that, but there's been a lot going on in the life of our church and we've yet been able to put that together. What has transpired in the last number of weeks is a series of correspondence between uh, people who are kind of grappling with this topic uh, and are part of the Christchurch family um, and myself, as well as those who have decided to move off of Christchurch over this particular topic, even though there's no other reason why they would have left. And so I had a number of these interactions and um, it's kind of opened my eyes a little bit to see uh, where people exist in their conviction in and around this particular topic. And I am very excited about where we are as a church. I am very excited about the strong degree of support that we have from the church body. Uh, But it does bring me sadness that there are those who were part of the Christchurch family, dear friends, not that our friendship is over, but uh, just changes things when someone leaves your community over issues like this. And so um, it has been a little sad for me having some of these conversations and email correspondence and phone calls and text messages. So I just wanted to mention that kind of right out the top. The last uh, podcast, which hopefully you've listened to it, if you're listening to this edition, I had my 13-year-old, almost 14-year-old daughter, Genevieve, on the podcast, and we talked through the sermon content from July the 16th on women and the design of creation. And at this point, we could continue to go through the relevant passages, and we could parse them out, and um, that could be profitable, and I assume that that'll be a part of our Q&R time once we're able to put that on the calendar. And of course, we'll have the audio from that recorded and posted to the podcast, as well as a part three But I did want to just take a moment and uh, cover a few of the objections that I walked through uh, leading up to my uh, decision that complementarianism was not um, the most satisfying uh, biblical position on um, gender and gender roles. And so uh, I mentioned in the previous podcast and in the sermon uh, from the middle of July that it was really a multi-year process for me to reevaluate the passages and the hermeneutical, that is interpretive construct, that leads to the conclusion of complementarianism. And um, I put forward a position that I actually haven't heard anyone else take that I call interdependent co-regency. And I would really love to have some kind of scholastic debate and uh, rigorous engagement from other thinkers on the topic from both sides um, of the of the issue from the complementarian side and from the egalitarian side um, to talk about this. But I did also want to kind of mention that while complementarianism tends to coincide with conservatism and traditionalism and the kind of political right and egalitarianism tends to align itself with feminism and progressivism and the political left, um, This is not a clear spectrum, a monolithic argument for one side or the other. It's 
it's a very diverse set of beliefs and there's many different versions of this. And um, this is not flow out of a disposition towards traditionalism or conservatism or a disposition towards feminism or progressivism on my part. It really is a deep abiding desire to understand God's word and to apply it accurately. And I did not and do not feel that complementarianism does that. I know that there are many long answers to all of the text, the relevant texts, and the many objections. But um, I did want to kind of enter into my process of changing my mind from complementarianism to this new position of interdependent co-regency, which I explained in detail in the previous podcast, so I won't spend any time on that here. And I wanted to kind of talk about the four major obstacles that I experienced as I got to this point that I thought of interdependent co-regency. I saw that in the Genesis 1 and 2 scriptures and then began to try to read the rest of the Old and New Testament with that kind of interpretive model in play. And so the objections were, number one, the patriarchs. Okay, well, God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so patriarchy is is kind of like on display in the Old Testament. And so what do you do with that? And so people would ask, okay, well, why, why wasn't there a matriarchy here? Why wasn't it? Um, why wasn't it another way that more closely fits this interdependent co-regency? So that's a question that I had and that I worked through. Of course, that leads directly into the choosing of the 12 all-male disciples. Um, why not a mix of men and, and women if that was, in fact, the the move of Jesus? And even if you know patriarchy was um, kind of like a uh, amoral possibility of the way things were built, and it's descriptive of what was and not prescriptive about the way it should have been, why did Jesus choose 12 disciples? Uh, that kind of gives way to the New Testament teaching on uh, leadership in the church, which is a big part of this conversation, and the qualification of overseers in First um, Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And then lastly, uh, why is it that we have um, males only in the pinnacle of the leadership of the Old Testament in the classes of prophet, priest, and king? If we have time in this podcast, we'll also discuss uh, the nature of headship and uh, what's happening uh, in Ephesians chapter 5 and in Peter's letters. So I would just take a few minutes and, and walk through those. Before I did that, though, I did want to just address this uh, issue that I've been running into with many of the people that I've been um, talking about who are de- kind of departing from Christ Church over this issue. And there's an alarmism that's attached to this issue that really caught me off guard. I, I do remember it from my complementarian days. Um, there was a slippery slope argument that basically said, you know, once you start to give at, on this particular issue, it reveals a hermeneutic that's dangerous. And it's only a matter of time before you just uh, slide away from a, a faithful reading of the scriptures and a commitment to the priorities of God. And so there was a lot of like warning, big red flags anytime there was the empowering of women um, in complementarian circles. And um, I remember hearing that. Uh, didn't really affect me personally at the time, I don't think, as much. But as I've interacted with people who have rejected this idea of interdependent co-regency in favor of a traditionalist complementarianism, I'm really kind of caught off, bar, caught off guard by the level of kind of alarmism and 
the slippery slope argument and how, how much it's intact. I really sought to oppose that alarmism in the original sermon from July the 16th by making this issue about hermeneutics and not about women. It didn't start about women. It didn't start about um, pragmatism. It didn't start about culture. It really came down to how do you read the scriptures? And uh, the part of the, what makes me sad is that some of the people who have communicated that they're leaving Christ church over this issue um, have communicated that they just feel the way they feel. And there really isn't a rigorous study of the scriptures or a robust engagement on the topic it really is. It just doesn't feel right. And while I actually can affirm that there are people who haven't studied the scriptures as deeply as others, and you have an innate desire or sense on the inside um, to honor God and to follow him. And that sometimes that, 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 that subconscious kind of gut level response to something can be spot on. It's just not always spot on. And um, so that's, that's, that's part of what uh, makes me sad. Um, so anyway, I don't think there's anything to be scared of. And even if you're part of the Christchurch family or you're listening over the podcast and you disagree with my arguments about interdependent co-regency and you're leaning towards complementarianism or even soft complementarianism, which would see a very robust role of women in the church and very active engagement and decision-making in the home. And yet we have just, you know, a few, a few, a few offices or roles off limits for women, like being the lead preaching pastor or serving as an elder. Um, this is kind of the debate that's happening in the Southern Baptist convention. You really have complementarians and soft complementarians um, who can't get along based on, can you give a woman the title of pastor, even though she's still restricted from serving as an elder or a preaching pastor, lead pastor. So kind of no matter where you are in that, I just don't think there's anything to be afraid of. There's not, there's not an alarmist uh, response. If in fact, our hermeneutical interpretive uh, method is on the table and we can actually talk about that and we're not responding culturally or uh, ignoring the scriptures instead dealing with those. And so uh, that's my appeal. If you're still listening at this point, which you probably aren't, <laughs> I hope you're not afraid uh, to continue to have this conversation. I just want to, uh, remind everyone, uh, this is a, this has been a phrase that has made its way through church history, but in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. We want to be a people who are unified around the essentials and who allow for liberty around non-essentials. And unfortunately, this issue, while it is a non-essential, is more often treated as an essential uh, because of this alarmism. And so even, even where charity exists, and I'm grateful that it does, I haven't had anybody be unkind or accusatory or attacking. Um, so there has been charity in the conversation, but certainly not the liberty that I would have hoped to have seen. Um, and instead, uh, a lack of unity, kind of seeing this as a, an essential, despite the hermeneutical and interpretive method conversation that we started with. So I just wanted to put that out there. So let's talk about these objections. Um, number one, the, the patriarchs. So as I mentioned in the sermon, um, patriarchy is in fact described for us in the Old Testament. And it is the method by which God built his family, the promise to Abraham. But I will argue that it, if you read it, it, it was a promise to Abraham, but it was a promise to Abraham who was married to Sarah or at the time Sarai. And Abram and Sarai were the ones to receive this promise from God. And 
Um, there was no other means by which God fulfilled his promise. And that is the story of Hagar and Ishmael um, was to try to bypass this promise made to Abraham around Sarah and her barrenness. And so, again, it comes down to how you choose to read the scriptures. With, with an interdependent co-regency interpretive model intact, you would see that Sarah or Sarai is like integral to the center of this promise. And this promise would, in fact, not be fulfilled without her. You also notice in Genesis, as the story unfolds, great care is given to the selection of a wife for Isaac. And while that happens in the structure of patriarchy and in the, the, the promises made and the, the, the sending of the servant to find a wife for Isaac and the bringing of Rebecca and the giving of Rebecca by her father, like patriarchy is obviously what's, what's dominating the world. The scriptures are going to great length to talk about the importance of who this, this wife ends up being and how this family ends up being built. And then, Similar to that in the Jacob story with Jacob's love for Rachel and the trick that he gets uh, played on, um, has played on him in the marriage of her sister Leah and the ensuing stories about the, the faithfulness of God to bring about this tribe of 12, again, echoing the mistakes of his grandfather through his wife, his wives, plural, which was not a good thing, and their maidservants, which is not a good thing. But this is the source of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in fact, one of the features of this story is the importance of God's faithfulness to Leah and the fact that it's Leah's firstborn son, Judah, who becomes um, the head of the Messianic tribe. And so these, these things begin to pop when you begin to read them with a different filter. And so while you may see the description of patriarchy throughout the Old Testament and in that kind of Bronze Age period of the world, um, the father rule made a lot more sense, but the scripture does not describe even this father rule as being this, um, this hard and fast reality. In fact, uh, the women involved in their role in the redemptive story and the centrality of their role and the importance of their role is really clear. And that's echoed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one. I don't, I don't know if you've read this or not, but there's three sets of 14 men by which the, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, comes from Abraham and down all the way to Joseph, Mary's husband. But even in the telling of that genealogy, Matthew includes for us, verse 5, Salmon by the father of, Bo, uh, father of Boaz by Rahab. And so a woman is named. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And so these stories with an integral female counterpart are mentioned and the woman is named. Uh, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And so you're getting a reminder, not the name Bathsheba, but the wife of Uriah. And you're getting a picture of um, David's need for a savior, but also um, the importance of the woman by which the Messiah came and her inclusion in the genealogy. And of course, this ends with a focus on uh, Mary because this genealogy ends in Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, verse 16 tells us. And so the scripture writers are very um, purposeful in including the role of women. And so it's not as though the Old Testament was all patriarchal and then Jesus changed things. Um, but the New Testament writers existed in this patriarchy and, you know, Paul's a chauvinist and so on and so forth. No, if you're looking for it, what you'll see is that um, women play a prominent role and there's features in there with their inclusion that bring you to a different perception, a different perspective. 
And so that, that kind of loosened up um, the patriarchs for me, not as a model or a prescriptive way in which the world ought to be ordered, but instead a descriptive way of the way that it was. Just like polygamy is the way that it was, but it's not to say that it's the way that it should be. And so that objection began to kind of crumble and it turned me to the 12. Okay, well, why did Jesus then choose 12 all-male disciples if um, leadership isn't in, uh, inherently male? And uh, the answer to that is that Jesus was sending a message uh, in the same way that Jesus was sent only to the, the household of Israel to bring about uh, miracles and revelation of who God was and then to die in their place. He had eyes on uh, good news of great joy for all people. In fact, throughout the Gospels, Jesus is regularly pushing uh, the boundaries and bringing healing to Samaritans and to Greeks and to Syrophoenicians and, and to Romans. And, and so this, this, um, this border is being pressed. And so Jesus does choose 12 male disciples, but the males are important as well as the number 12 because Jesus is sending a picture that he is, in fact, fulfilling the call of God's people, Israel, and he chooses for himself 12 men, just like Jacob, Israel, had 12 sons, and all of them were Jews, but they were not all from the tribes of all 12 tribes. They were, they were men mostly from the tribe of Judah, some from Benjamin, some unknown. Um, Matthew may have been a Levite. His name was Levi, and that's a possibility, but we don't know that. And so Jesus is not trying to um, Jesus is trying to communicate something to those who were his followers and to those who would come generations after him through the witness of these 12 disciples. Um, and he wouldn't have been able to communicate that if he had appointed women to those positions. He, no one would have gotten that message. If he had had six men and six women, they wouldn't have understood that that meant anything uh, that had to do with the fulfillment of the calling of Israel, that Jesus is the true son of God, um, that he is the true Israel and um, that all of us who are followers of him now um, joined with him by faith uh, been sent authorized and we're that new nation of people and so that is the purpose of what he's doing and i think he communicates that quite clearly but that's not all jesus did jesus also collected um, a large group of women and in fact invited those women like mary to sit at his feet as students and he taught them um, he was supported by women and women traveled with him and met his expenses. And um, he stood up for women and even in his death, saw to it that his mom was um, taken in by the disciple whom he loved. And so the centrality and care for women that Jesus showed was quite remarkable. And when you take that as a whole, there's nothing about the choosing of the 12 or the way Jesus interacted with women that would bring you to a complementarian um, outlook in and of itself. And so again, it just becomes an interpretive lens and what are you going to approach that? And then the same thing is true about Paul in the early church. So you get to first Timothy three and Titus one and the qualification of overseers. One of my big hangups there at the end was, okay, well, it says that elders should be the husband of one wife. And so it seems like the presupposition is that all elders are men. And in fact, the word for el elder overseer is a, is a masculine word. And so it seems like the presumption from Paul is that all the leaders are going to be men and that fits the complementarian kind of worldview. But again, if no one's there to push back, um, then you just kind of settle into that and move forward with the soft complementarianism. But what do we then do with the 10th commandment that says that we, we uh, shall not covet our neighbor's wife. 
just because that is written to men and into masculine and makes the wife the object of covetousness, does that mean that it's not against God's law for a woman to covet her neighbor's husband? I don't think any of us would draw that conclusion. And yet that's the same logic that we apply to uh, men being the ones in question. And in fact, language um, really calls us to place that language, uh, that terminology into one um, gender when there's a gendered language like that. And so it's just a natural way for us to communicate. I mean, you can look to a, um, a group of guys and girls and say, hey, guys, and no one thinks, oh, well, you're not acknowledging the women. You're only speaking to the men. No, we just use that term generically to speak to a group of men and women. And so there's really nothing in those qualifications that prohibits a woman from leading or having those same qualifications applied to her and an evaluation of her character, just like it says that their children ought to be in order and respect respectful. Does that mean that if you don't have children, you can't be an elder? Is that a presupposition? No, you're just stretching it too far. But the language isn't, well, if in the case that an elder is a woman or is a man, then this, and then this, and then if they have children, then this, it's just more simply put and left to um, our understanding. So that one kind of fell apart for me as well. And then the last and final one was, okay, well, what about the fact that in the Old Testament, there are only kings of Israel and no queens, and all the high priests are men, and there's no priestesses, and that the major prophets, and there were women who prophesied, but the major prophets were all men. And again, this comes down to the fulfillment of the headship of humanity in Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. And so God chose Jesus to be his son, not his daughter. Uh, God, God is other than us, and we are created in his image as male and female. And so men reflect the nature of God in a different way. Women reflect the nature of God. God is not gendered in the sense that he is bound by uh, one of the genders, and therefore the other one is unlike him. In fact, both of us reflect something of his nature. And when in union with him in the end of the redemptive story in the new age, there is no more sexuality and there is no more marriage because the gift of those things has been utterly fulfilled in our union with Christ as humans. So we retain our maleness and humanness, um, but we're out of the range, out of the sphere, out of the need for gender expressed in sexuality. So um, these things matter, but in the Old Testament, um, Jesus is going to come on the scene as the son of God, as the new Israel, as our prophet, priest, and king. And so it is entirely expected that those roles would then be fulfilled by men leading up to the Christ. And the, the prophetic utterance is that in the new age, when, when Christ comes and his spirit is poured out, that, that his spirit be poured out on all flesh. And so your sons and your daughters would prophesy. And so young and old, male and female, rich and poor, all the categories of humanity are broken as the Holy Spirit falls indiscriminately into all people. And so again, it just, just comes down to how you choose to read this. Which kind of brings us to the topic of headship, which I did talk about uh, in the podcast before, but, um, and I've had this conversation in other sermons, but um, we tend to get this argument over headship by defining the word Head, kephale, for complementarians, head means authority, a rule, and for egalitarians, it means source, which doesn't have an authoritarianism in it. Um, I don't agree with egalitarians. I don't think it means source. It doesn't make any sense. It would be like the head of a river. 
But I also don't agree with the complementarians that headship um, means specifically authority. Um, really, it comes down to the issue of uh, a representative, someone who stands in the place of the whole, someone who is uh, in and of himself or herself, the the top and representative of the body, in, for instance. And so if you have you know, a figurehead of a corporation, then that person is representing the entire corporation. It doesn't matter if that person is a male or a female. And so um, headship was a category that was functioning um, and in an Aristotelian sense, a Platonic sense, in the household codes for the Greek-speaking world in the first century. And so they were very familiar with household codes and man as the head of the household. And what the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians chapter 5 and what Peter echoes in his epistles is he takes the form of those household codes and then he turns it on its head, no pun intended, uh, where in the household codes, the Aristotelian household codes, uh, women are not spoken to or even acknowledged. They're talked about as possessions. And as the man is the head of his household, um, he is seen as primary and has all of the authority. And his wife is is possession. And in fact, if there's any second, close second, it would be his oldest son would be kind of seen in that patriarchal sense um, as kind of the next highest power person in the household. And what the Apostle Paul and what Peter do is they take that formulation of household codes and they turn it upside down. They say, okay, here's how men are the head of the house. They're the head of the house the way Christ is the head of the church. He's the representative head. He is, he is um, connected inextricably and caring for his own body. And, and uh, what they do, which you've probably noticed, is the Apostle Paul starts with a, a call in verse 21 of mutual submission. Sub submit yourselves, therefore, one to another. And then he starts by speaking directly to the women, wives, submit yourself to your husband. And he is in that way, acknowledging the uh, independence that she has and calling her to exercise uh, that independence in interdependence through submission toward her husband. And so this is a very, very uh, explicit way of communicating an entirely different worldview. But because we don't have the contrast of experiencing life in the first century and uh, having a very high degree of familiarity with the Aristotelian and Platonic household codes, uh, we don't get it. It doesn't connect with us. And so we get fixated on what does head mean? And so um, it really is a, it really is a strong support for interdependent co-regency and for a prominent uh, understanding of the role of women in the household, um, the way that it's worded. And so headship as, as uh, authoritarianism to me falls apart also. Now, we could have a much longer conversation about this, and you may have a bunch of questions or objections come into your mind. And if you tuck those away, I'm happy to walk through them together uh, in community and, and have a little Q&R discussion. But ultimately, these end up being non-essentials. And therefore, if you disagree with me, that's fine. Uh, and the only issue that comes down to it is that we, we are employing uh, females on the staff, and we want... Uh, the women who work for Christ Church and who are gifted to teach and to preach and to lead, to be able to use those gifts in a way that they have the, the support and the honor and the respect of those who are part of the Christ Church family. And so I do understand if that's something that um, different individuals don't see themselves being able to uh, work within, but it makes my heart sad. And I would love to see us have uh, conviction-based kind of sub-essentials and to recognize what those are and to talk about them. And so 
you know, there are a lot of examples of non-essentials um, that become very important to people. Things like polity, whether you're going to be Presbyterian or um, Episcopalian, what's your, what's your authority structure going to look like? If you're going to be pastor-led or elder-led, the role of spiritual gifts. Some people don't want to be in a church where uh, spiritual gifts are pursued or exercised. Uh, the, even the belief about the baptism of the Spirit among um continuationists or charismatics who disagree about what does baptism in the spirit mean? Eschatology certainly is a big one where a lot of people disagree, but it doesn't mean we can't worship together, be in community together, uh, fulfill the mission together. The frequency of communion. I mean, I've, I've had this conversation so many times with people who believe um, just deeply that we should be taking communion together every Sunday as a church. And um, so they don't come to Christ church or they only come on the weeks that we have communion. Um, in addition to that, there's, um, convictions based around how the Bible should be preached, topical or chapter and verse, expository sermons. And so all of these things matter in terms of your preferred church experience. But I just want to say, like, no matter where you choose to worship and what community you align yourself with and, and build with, these things really are non-essentials. So I would love for us to have this disposition that I mentioned in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And so for those who have departed with kindness, I thank you for your kindness. And uh, I am sad that we can't continue to do church together with that unity. I do recognize the liberty that you have to do so. And there are plenty of faithful churches who disagree with me in this position. And um, they're at liberty to do so with no judgment from this side. Uh, but I sure would love to talk about it. And so I continue to invite your questions. Um, I did get some emails on the last podcast, but all of them were supportive and uh, communicating gratitude and expressing some of the convictions and uh, feelings that have um, been had. And so they're great. But if you have any pushback or any questions specifically related to the scriptures or to this idea behind independent co-regency, I'd love to continue that conversation with you. And it'll also help us as we prepare for a little live Q&R time. And so uh, welcome to send those in. Jesse, I joined with Jesus. Thanks for taking a half an hour or so to, to listen in. And I look forward to getting your feedback. And uh, we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, Find us online at joinwithjesus.org.